Hey y'all, you're now tuned in to the original podcast of A Stronger Foundation. Welcome. Some call me doctor, others call me Master T. You can call me anytime. I'm Sweet T, the academic architect, PDO, that's planner, designer, and overseer of the academic success plan for kids. So tell your neighbor or call somebody and let them know it's that time. Hey y'all, let's get building. Hey team, thank you so much for stopping by. Listen, I've got some academic concerns. I just gotta get off my chest, all right? Listen, here's how I know we have this all backwards. You see, at the end of any school day, the average teacher works late in the classroom, planning and gathering strategies from multiple sources in order to incorporate differentiation in their lesson. They never stop believing that they can save that student who unfortunately does not want to be saved. After being kicked out of the school building by the custodians, the same teacher goes home with a huge bag of take-home work. One minute later, they collapse on the couch from exhaustion. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the next neighborhood, their students have already completed the five-minute homework assignment and is sitting on the couch playing video games or surfing the internet for something to occupy their time. (laughs) Does anyone else see what is wrong with this picture? We must turn the tables. The fact is that it is a known fact that teachers take a lot of heat from students, from parents, from administrators, and even from other teachers. For example, if a child goes home and and seem a bit tired after school, the parent complains to the principal and then the teacher gets called into the office and practically gets reprimanded for trying to push the student to achieve more. You see, as a parent, when you decide to commit to a program like the academic success plan for kids, you are committing to the restructuring of the way your child presently learns, mainly by enhancing the rigor and accountability. So let's get it out in the open. As far as a rigorous academic program is concerned, your child is gonna complain about hard work. It's too much work, mama. My fingers hurt. I hate it. And I want to quit. I mean, that's to be expected. Even as adults, we whine when the work is too hard. 
right? We, we want to lose the weight, but we don't want to do the work. So it's expected hard work gets complaints. What else could be expected with a program like this? Well, others will criticize it. Oh my, it's so old school. Kids just don't learn that way anymore. Or, it's not research-based. Some may say, oh dear, it's too great a load for my child's brain. So what I tell parents who decide to take on the challenge of the academic success plan for kids, I say, it is not your duty to defend this program. This program speaks for itself. People, people criticize based on fear of the unknown as well as based on fear of the possibilities. See, people fear competition. And after reviewing the components of the academic success plan for kids, Many now realize and acknowledge deep down that this is the academic fix for what is broken. So here's an analogy. You know I love analogies. So in the sports of track and field, no one worries about the runner who spends all day eating junk food and never practices because, well, they're not really the competition. There's no comp competition there. They don't pose a challenge because they're lethargic and they're out of practice. But you know, who the athletes worry about? They worry about that runner who stays in the gym, building strength, endurance, stamina. To summarize this analogy, the more athletes there are with great athletic habits, the larger the competitive pool for the gold medal, the Olympic gold medal. So if the person who is at the top was to be unethical, or maybe if they decided to show poor sportsmanship, they may say, you know, being number one is really overrated. Now, this is what they may say to somebody else that they don't really want to work hard and compete with them. They may say, you know, being number one is overrated. 
It's quite lonely at the top. And it's a lot of pressure. It's hard work and you never ever get to take a break. Trust me, fame is not all it's cracked up to be, they may say. It's actually better to be down where you are. You know what they're actually saying, translated? They're saying, thank you. Thank you for making it so very easy for me to stay at the top. See, the less you work and practice is the less effort I have to put out to keep beating you out for scholarships and honors, and jobs and recognitions. So again, I say, thank you. Thank you so much for being mediocre. Keep it up. You rock. That's what they're really saying. So how does this analogy apply? Well, the more kids that advances from the vastly mediocre education that is so common to a great majority of today's learners, the larger the competitive pool for scholarships and colleges. So don't be surprised if you hear critics saying, hey, too hard, take a break, give, your, give their brain a little time to breathe. They're only kids, let them play. Meanwhile, these same people many times hit the books so hard once they get off that playground. The fact remains, you see, the average parent have no clue about their child's actual academic standing. And during parent-teacher conferences, parents pretend to understand the discussion regarding the child's actual status when they really have no clue and are truly lost. Parents comfort this confusion by thinking that as long as their child keeps on passing to the next grade, then everything must be fine. In actuality, there is a huge gap that is widening every year. The academic decisions of an oblivious parent is like a death academic death sentence to the child. Here's some facts. See, of the six hours that your children are in school, only a fraction is spent on actual academics. Subtract two hours for miscellaneous activities like lunch, recess, transitions, etc. Now down to four hours. And sadly, out of that small fraction, only a small fraction 
is actually constructive due to the numerous obscured and not so obscured distractions in the general classroom. These obscured distractions are often quite justifiable. Sometimes a child is just cold or hungry or bored, maybe angry from something that happened during recess. Sometimes they're just lost and just don't know where the teacher is in the lesson. The not so obscure distractions refer to the kids that perceive school time as social time. All in all, these hindering factors, whether obscured or unobscured, prevent effective learning from taking place. Now, some teachers may confess that independent work time is essentially equivalent to playtime unless the child is held accountable with tangible work evidence. So in review, of the six total hours in a general school day, subtracting four hours from the actual on-task time leaves about two real hours of academics per day. But in a parent's mind, this child has received six stringent hours of academic focus and learning, when in reality, they only had two hours. Now for me, it becomes a moral issue that any parent can be at peace knowing that in a 24-hour day period, only two hours are designated to the most essential component in their child's life. The very component that will determine a child's livelihood, their success and comfort as an adult. You see, it's one thing for me if a child was able to see their future self and make a fair analysis and be able to say, wow, I like who I have become. Or maybe, oh boy, I don't like what I've become. Then maybe if they were able to then review their actions and the steps they took that led to that particular destiny. and then be able to modify, make modifications, make changes, make adjustments to those steps and to the decisions they made that led to those steps. Unfortunately, kids cannot do that. But you know who can? Parents. As parents, we have something that our children don't have. And that's the ability to live in the future. Hear me out now. As parents, we have the life experience 
of a once present child now transitioned into the future version of ourself. Many times as adults, we wish we could go back in time to add more rigor to our efforts that led to the person we are today. But we cannot go back in time. What we can do is not allow our children to repeat the same pattern. Now, as you will notice, I am very opinionated regarding the significance of including rigor to a child's academics as early as possible. As early as first grade, in fact. Now, at times as I speak and I talk in this episode and future episodes, it may, it may be misconstrued that I believe teachers are at fault. So right off the bat, let me explain that regardless of what I say in this or future episodes, it must not be taken as an attack against teachers. Now you can quote me on this statement here. Teachers are goddesses. Now some may be burnt out from the stress they endure. But in general, every teacher wants their students to not only succeed, but to excel. So understand, this is not about your child's classroom teacher. It's about your child. It's about you taking the initiative to align your child at present with their future ideal self. Now, too many kids miss the mark and fall just short of greatness. And it's a bitter shame, mainly because it is so easily preventable. For example, let's talk about preventative tutoring. It's no more costly than any other extracurricular activity. But what makes us as parents so much more willing to invest in gymnastics or baseball and other little league sports that we know our child will not pursue. What makes us so much more inclined to invest in sports than we are to invest in the one thing that no one can ever take away from our children? You see, whereas in sports, a physical injury can ruin any athlete's dream. 
And education is not affected in the same way by physical handicaps. So it is a wise and prudent investment for parents to make. The issue though, is that many parents don't even realize that this investment is necessary for their child. And then a lot of time when I speak to parents, they ask me this question and I call it the million dollar question. Parents ask, if my child has academic gaps, why do they receive a PR on their report cards? Why do I call it the million dollar question? Because if I had a million dollar, I'm sorry, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this question, I would certainly be a millionaire. Here's how I explain to these parents. Let's say that in a general school year, okay, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, so forth, um, there's standards that students must learn. That's assigned and aligned with this particular year. So let's say there were 50 skills that your child should know. But somehow only five is assessed. So the way it works is that, I mean, all skills are, skills are important, but sometimes in some situations, kids are let off the hook because maybe if they don't have the, the internal drive to push themselves to master the 50 skills, a lot of times the curriculum will pretty much focus on five of these skills and say, okay, these are the, the five most essential skills for success in the next grade. So the curriculum guides the focus of the five skills that will be tested. Follow me. And this means that all the instruction is practically geared in that area, making it nearly impossible for the student to fail. But the other 45 skills are neglected and left for the next grade to deal with. So if out of 50 skills, you're only assessed on five skills that you've been prepped and prepared and practiced and, and stressed, I mean, Think about your chances of doing well on those skills. But those 45 skills that are neglected each year in this process continues until the student is required to really know the material and ultimately becomes 
overwhelmed. PR in primary grades is equivalent to a 70% in secondary grades. And that is one point from a D. The PR scale runs from 70% and above. So really, most parents have no way of determining where their child is on that scale. Now, 70% is one point away from a D. That's what bothers me. That's what trouble me. See, now at the point where the student has now all these gaps because all the, the skills that were swept under the rug and left to be dealt with at a later time, now the parent begins to see it. See, as a child get ready to transition into secondary, sixth grade, they begin to get letter grades. Now, when the student brings home a C or a D, parents normally now, that's their wake-up call, first wake-up call. And they're forced with two options. You must settle and accept that this is your child. This is their grade. This is where they are. They are a D student. Or engage in a tug tug of war battle of your life. And that's what a lot of parents do. But here's the problem with that. See, just like when certain habits are not broken in a child at a young age, similarly, learned helplessness is fossilized after a certain point in a child's life. So even if your child is not interested in becoming a doctor, what is the crime in them having the ability to pursue that path if they so desire? Why not prepare them in such a way that they can make a fair and unadulterated choice about their future path? Prepare them so that the path they take is one of choice that is not the result of the absence of ability. Prepare your child so that regardless of what path they decide to go in later, they have that academic foundation to do it. And even if they decide not to pursue a career that's equivalent to their high academic achievement, it's still a win for your child. Education is always a win. It's the wise investment. Thank you so much for listening.